curtain of green. Every day, on summer in Larkins Hill, it rained a little. The rain was a regular thing, and would come at about two o'clock in the afternoon. One day, almost as late as five o'clock, the sun was still shining. It seemed almost to spin in a tiny groove in the polished sky, and down below, in the trees along the street, and in the rows of flower gardens in the town, every leaf reflected the sun from a hardness like a mere surface. Nearly all the women sat at the windows of their houses, fanning and sighing, waiting for the rain. Miss Larkin's garden was a huge, densely grown plot running downhill beside the small white house where she had lived alone since the death of her husband. The sun and rain of that summer had not discouraged her from working there daily. Now, the intense sun, like tweezers, picked out her clumsy, slight figure and its old pair of men's overalls rolled up at the sleeves and trousers separated from it separated from the thick leaves and made it look strange and yellow as she worked with the hoe, over-vigorous, disreputable, and heedless. Within its border of hedge, like a wall, invisible only from the upstairs windows of the neighbors, this slanting, tingled garden, more and more overabundant and confusing, must have become so familiar to Miss Larkin that she must, that she might be unable to now conceive of any other place. Since the accident in which her husband was killed, she had never once been seen anywhere else. Every morning, she might be observed walking slowly, rather timidly, out of the white house, wearing a pair of the untidy overalls, often with her hair streaming and almost matted where she had neglected to comb it. She would wander about for a little while at first, uncertainly, deep among the plants and wet with their dew, and not quite putting out her hand to touch anything. Then a sort of sturdiness would possess her, stable her, and she would stand still for a moment, as if a blindfold had been removed, and then she would kneel in the flowers and begin to work. She worked without stopping, almost invisibly submerged all day among the thick, irregular sloping beds of plants. The servant would call her at dinner time, and she would obey. But it was not until it was completely dark that she would truthfully give up her labor, and with a drooping, submissive walk, appear at the house, slowly opening the small, low door at the back. Even the rain would only bring a pause to her. She would move to the shelter of a pear tree, which in mid-April hung heavily, almost to the ground, in brilliant full-leaf in the center of the garden. It might seem as if the extreme fertility of the garden were at once a preoccupation and challenge to Miss Larkin. Only by ceaseless activity could she cope with the rich blackness of the soil. Only by cutting, separating, thinning, and tying back in clumps of flowers and bushes and vines could she have kept them from overreaching their boundaries and multiplying out of all reason. The daily summer rains could only increase her vigilance and almost already excessive energy. And yet, Miss Larkin rarely cut, separated, tied back. To a certain extent, she seemed not to seek for order, but to allow an overflowering. As if consciously ventured now 
a little further, a little deeper into her life in the garden. She planted every kind of flower that she could find or order from a catalog, planted thickly and hastily without stopping to think, without any regard for the ideas that her neighbors might elect in their club as to what constituted an appropriate visa, or an effect of restfulness or even a harmony of color. Just to what end Miss Larkin worked so strenuously in her garden, her neighbors could not see. She certainly never sent a single one of her fine flowers to any of them, and if she thought of beauty at all, they regarded her stained overalls, now almost a color with the leaves, she certainly did not strain for it in her garden. It was impossible to enjoy looking at such a place, to the neighbors gazing down from their upstairs windows, it had the appearance of a sort of jungle, in which the slight, heedless form of its owner daily lost itself. At first, after the death of Mr. Larkin, for whose father, after all, the town had been named, they had called upon the widow with decent frequency, but she had not appreciated it, they said to one another. Now, Occasionally, they looked down from their bedroom windows as they brushed studiously at their hair in the morning. They found her place in the garden, as they might have run their finger toward a city in the map of a foreign country, locating her from their distance, almost in curiosity, and then forgot her. Early that morning, they had heard whistling in the Larkin Garden. They had once, they had recognized Jamie's tune and seen him kneeling in the flowers at Miss Larkin's side. He was the only colored boy who worked in the neighborhood by day. Even Jamie, it was said, Miss Larkin would tolerate now, only, and then. Throughout the afternoons, she had raised her head at intervals to see how fast he was getting along in her, his transplanting. She had not let him wait until after the rain to do it. She was busy with the hoe, clearing one of the last patches of uncultivated ground for some new shrubs. She bent under the sunlight, chopping in blunt, rapid, tireless strokes. Once she raised her head far back to stare at the flashing sky. Her eyes were dull and puckered, as if from long impatience or bewilderment. Her mouth was a sharp line. People said she never smoked. But the memory tightened around her easily, without the prelude of warning or even despair. She would see promptly, as if a curtain had been jerked quite unceremoniously away from a little scene, the front porch of the white house, the shady street in front, and the blue automobile in which her husband approached, driving from home from work. It was a summer day, a day from the summer before, and the freedom of gaily turning her head, a motion she was now forced by memory to repeat as she hoed the ground. She could see again that the tree was going to fall. There had been no warning, but there was the enormous tree, the fragrant chinaberry tree, suddenly tilting, dark and slow like a cloud, leaning down to her husband. From her port from her place on the front porch, she had spoken in a soft voice to him, never so intimate as at that moment, you can't be killed. But the tree had fallen, had struck the car so exactly as if to crush him to death. She had waited there on the porch for a time afterwards, 
not moving at all, in a sort of recollection, as if to reach under and bring out from the obliteration her protective words and to try them once again, so as to change the whole happening. It was an accident that was incredible when her love for her husband was keeping her safe, keeping him safe. She continued to hoe the black ground to beat down the juicy weeds. Presently, she became aware that hers was the only emotion to continue in the whole slackened place. There was no wind at all now. The cries of the birds had hushed. The sun seemed clamped beside the sky. Everything had stopped once again. The stillness had memorized the stems of the plants, and all the leaves went suddenly into thickness. The shadow of the pear tree in the, mid- in the center of the garden lay callous on the ground. Across the yard, Jamie knelt motionless. Jamie, she cried angrily, but her voice hardly carried in the dense garden. She felt all at once terrified, as though her loneliness had been pointed out by some outside force whose finger parted the hedge. She drew her hand for an instant to her breast, an obscure fluttering there frightened her, as though the force babbled to her. The bird that flies within your heart could not divide this cloudy air. She stared without expression at the garden. She clung to the hoe again and stared across the green leaves towards Jamie, a look of ductility in the negro's back as he knelt in the flowers began to infuriate her. She decided to walk towards him, dragging the hoe vaguely through the flowers behind her. She forced herself to look at him and noticed him closely for the first time, the way he looked like a child. And as he turned her head a little to one side and negligently, negligently, stirred the dirt with his yellow finger, she saw with a sort of helplessness, helpless suspicion and hunger, a soft, rather deprecating smile on his face. He was lost in some impossible dream of his own while he transplanted the Xenia shoots. He was not even whistling, even that sound was gone. She walked nearer to him, he must have been death. Almost stealthily, bearing down upon his laxity and absorption, as if that glimpse on the side of his face, that turned away smile, were a teasing, innocent, flickering, and beautiful vision, some mirage to her strained and wandering eyes. Yet, feeling of stricture, of responding hopelessness, almost approaching ferocity, grew with alarming quickness about her. When she was directly behind him, she stood quite still for a moment in the queer, sheathed manner she had before beginning her gardening in the morning. Then she raised the hoe above her head. Clumsy sleeves fell back, exposing the thin, unsunburned whiteness of her arms, the shocking fact of their youth. She gripped the handle tightly tightly as though convinced that the wood of the handle could feel and that all her strength could indent its surface with pain. The head of Jamie bent there below her seemed witless, terrifying, wonderful, almost inaccessible to her, and yet 
in its explicit nearness, meant surely for destruction. With its clustered, hot, woolly hair, its intricate, glistening ears, its small, brown, branching seams of sweat, the bowed head holding so obviously and so deftly its ridiculous dream, such a head she could strike off intentionally, so deeply did she know from the effects of man's danger and death and its cause of oblivion, and so helpless was she, too helpless to defy the workings of accident, of life and death, of unaccountability. Life and death, she thought, gripping the heavy hoe. Life and death, which now meant nothing to her, but which she was compelled to continue to wield both her hands, ceaselessly asking, was it not possible to compensate to punish, to protest. Pale darkness turned for a moment through the sunlight, like a narrow leaf blown through the garden in the wind. At that moment, the rain came. The first drop touched her upraised arm. Small, close sounds and coolness touched her. Sighing, Miss Larkin lowered the hoe to the ground and laid it carefully among the growing plants. She stood still where she was, close to Jamie, and listened to the rain falling. It was so gentle, it was so full, the sound of the end of waiting. In the light from the rain, different from sunlight, everything appeared to gleam unreflecting from within itself, in its quiet arcade of identity. The green of the small Xena shoots was almost pure, almost burning. One by one, as the rain reached them, all the individual little plants shone out, then the branching vines. The pear tree gave a soft, rushing noise, like the wings of a bird alighting. She could sense behind her, as if a lamp were lighted in the night, the signal light whiteness of the house. Then Jamie, as if in the shock of realizing the rain had come, turned his full face towards her, questions and delight intensifying his smile gathering upon his stretching body. He stammered somewhat disconnected words, shyly. She did not answer Jamie or move at all. She would not feel anything now except the rain falling. She listened for its scattered soft drops between Jamie's words, its quiet touch of the spears of the iris leaves and a clear sound like a bell as it began to fall in a picture the cook had set on the doorstep. Finally, Jamie stood there quietly, as if waiting for his money, with his hand trying to brush his confusion away from his face. The rain fell steadily. Wind of deep, wet fragrance beat against her, then as if it had swelled and broken over a daily levee. The tenderness tore and spun through her. It has come, she thought senselessly, her head lifting and her eyes looking without understanding at the sky which had begun to move, to fold nearer into softening, dissolving clouds. It was almost dark. Soon the loud, gentle night rain would come, would pound upon the steep roof of the white house. Within, she would lie in her bed and hear the rain. On and on, it would fall, beat and fall. The day's work would be over in the garden. She would lie in bed, her arms tired at her sides, in motionless peace. 
against that which was inexhaustible. There was no defense. Then Miss Larkin sank in one motion down into the flowers and lay there, fainting and shrieked with rain. Her face was fully upturned down among the plants, with the hair beaten away from her forehead and her open eyes closing at once when the rain touched them. Slowly, her lips began to part. She seemed to move slightly in the petulant adjustment of a sleeper. Jamie ran, jumping and crouching about her, drawing in his breath alternately at the flowers breaking under his feet and at the shapeless, passive figure on the ground. Then he became quiet and stood back a little distance and looked in awe at her unknowing face, white and rested under its bombardment. He remembered how something had filled him with stillness when he felt her standing there behind him, looking down at him, and he would not have turned around at that moment for anything in the world. He remembered the oblivious crash of the windows next door being shut when the rain started. But now, in this unseen place, it was he who stood looking at Miss Larkin, and a horrified, piteous, discreeting voice began to call her name until she stirred. Miss Lark! Miss Lark! Then he nimbly jumped to his feet and ran out of the garden.